You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group, Lavazza, and American National Insurance. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Angostura. If you've ever made a cocktail at home, you've most likely shaken Angostura bitters into your cocktail at the very end of the cocktail making process. In addition to bitters, Angostura has been making world-class rum for more than 130 years. The next fall cocktail you make, Try the beautiful, smooth flavor of Angostura rum. It will transport you to the Caribbean islands of Trinidad and Tobago. The House of Angostura will celebrate its 200-year anniversary of turning drinks into cocktails in 2024. Cheers, everyone. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Lavazza. Four generations of the Lavazza family have been working to perfect the art of blending coffee since 1895 with a devotion to making coffee moments special. Signature blend Lavazza Classico, with its intensely rich flavor and sweet aromatic notes, is a celebration of the Italian way of life in every cup, and is available any way you brew your coffee. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. Hi, everyone, and welcome to To Dine for the Podcast, where we meet the world's most creative and innovative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Command Sergeant Major Gretchen Evans. So that's my number one thing, is to encourage and empower people to live their best life in spite of things that have happened to them. And I think that you can't just tell that story. I think you have to live that story. Command Sergeant Major Gretchen Evans served 27 years in the United States Army. She served overseas and nationwide, as well as several combat deployments. Evans served as an intelligence analyst, counterintelligence agent, military police, paratrooper, and numerous other positions. Highly decorated during her tenure, she received more than 27 awards and decorations to include the Bronze Star. She was wounded in Afghanistan, which resulted in her near total loss of hearing, traumatic brain injury, and various other health challenges. Undaunted by her injuries and the sudden end of her military career, Evans authored a book, Leading from the Front, which poignantly tells the stories of soldiers in combat and peace. 
I cannot wait for you to hear my conversation with Command Sergeant Major Gretchen Evans. Command Sergeant Major, good morning. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Excellent. I love that you were early to this meeting because I would expect nothing less from a command sergeant major. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what they say. They say early is on time, on time is late, and late is never acceptable. <laughs> Amen. That's what I tell my three boys every morning on the way to school. Absolutely. Uh, well, first, let me ask, how would you like to be referred to? Because if I was a command sergeant major, I would insist that everyone call me that. But would you prefer Gretchen? <laughs> no, that's not, that's not necessary. So... It's funny, like my former soldiers will never call me anything but Sergeant Major because it's just that's who I am to them. But everybody else, I'm fine with just Gretchen. Okay. <laughs> and we shouldn't say just Gretchen, right? Because yeah. you are, if nothing, you are not, you're, you'll never be a just Gretchen <laughs> in your life. I always begin this conversation by asking the guests their favorite restaurant because it's such a fun way to begin a conversation. I believe food is a great connector and a uniter and helps to tell stories. I know you live in Maine, one of my favorite states. So you might choose a place close to you or maybe not. So please let me know where would you choose as your favorite restaurant, Gretchen? So uh, having recently moved back to my home state of Texas, and there's a place called the Outlaw Burger. It's veteran owned. And his restaurant has the best brisket and ribs I've ever had in my life. Oh. It's, it's a homey place. You walk in. And what I really like about it, too, is that over in the corner, he, he's got a table that's always set up to honor our MIA and POWs. Mm. Well, that tells a story, doesn't it? Yeah, that tells a story. Yeah, that tells a story. I had no idea you now live in Texas. That is a big departure from Maine. Yeah, so a couple of reasons. One, I have two brothers who live close to me now, an older and a younger brother. I'm, I'm the middle sandwich child, and I wanted to be close to them. Second, because I'm doing so much traveling, getting back to Maine was becoming a little difficult. Sure. And yeah, you're so far. It's beautiful, and I love, we spent three years in Maine, and I loved every minute of it, but I was getting stuck in the New York airports trying to get back sometimes because if you miss that last flight into Portland, you're just, you're there. Yeah. And so I told my husband, I'm, I'm starting to feel like Tom Hanks in the terminal. Okay. <laughs> because I, you know, I get so, and you know what, honestly, for the first time in my life, I could pick where I wanted to live. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't the military moving me and it wasn't the VA, you know, moving my husband in his second career. And so I thought I I'm ready to go home. Yes. Your husband, also a military man. I know, I don't remember the exact number, but it was either in the 20s or 30s of the amount of moves that you've made throughout your career. So I imagine when you got to Maine, it was nice to just breathe for a second, but then uh, it must be in your blood. You have to move. You're, you're, <laughs> you're not going to settle down. I think everybody says, nobody, I think they're betting against me whether or not I'll move again, but this is home. This is the first yeah. time I've moved home. So this is different. We uh, we said we've stacked arms. So in the military, that means you're going to be there a while. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would like for this to be our last move. I intend it to be our last move. <laughs> we shall see, Gretchen. Yeah, we shall see. <laughs> you know, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what it means to be from Texas, a little bit about your upbringing 
And did you always think you would have a career in the military? So first of all, what it means to be, to live in Texas, you know, everybody thinks their state's the best and that's as it should be. You should be very proud of, of wherever you're from. Uh, and I'm proud that I'm from Texas and, but Texas is different. So my husband being a, a guy from the Northeast, I sent him down here by himself and said, you go spend a week in Texas and you, before we make this move, because it has to, we both have to love it. And uh, I sent him down here and on day three, he calls me back and says, come pick me up at the airport. And I initially thought, oh my gosh, he didn't like it. <laughs> and I said, is everything okay? He goes, yeah, I bought a house. Oh. He embraced the Texas culture, which is, you know, every, every state has its warts. It is hot in summer, but that in relative terms to us, having served in the Middle East, it's really not that hot. Mm -hmm. And but take, Texas has got a flavor about it. OK, yes. it's friendly. People wave to you on the street. Mm -hmm. You know, there's flags everywhere. That's important to me. Mm -hmm. It's very patriotic state. It's very veteran friendly. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of accommodations for people who've served their country. So that's always a nice thing. It's just Texas. We're not part of the South. We're not part of the West. <laughs> we're not part of the, we're just Texas. Yes. <laughs> you are a tech, I've never met someone from Texas who isn't so deeply proud. If yeah. they live in Texas, they would not consider living anywhere else. They really yeah. love it. They they're love from it. Texas. Yeah, yeah, they're from Texas. Oh, yeah. you're from the South. No, we're yeah. not part of the South. We're Texas. Yes, okay. exactly. <laughs> So I just wondered about your background. You know, obviously your your life has led you to have a deep patriotism, but I'm wondering, did that come from your family? Were your family in the military? And did you think you would have a career in the military when you were in high school? No, I didn't. In fact, my father was a World War II veteran, but he didn't, you know, like most World War II veterans, he didn't talk a lot about his service, although he was a very patriotic man and loved his country. And what really prompted me to join the military was really initially out of necessity. Mm. So my parents died within six months of each other when mm. I was in high school. Wow. And my oldest brother had just turned 21. He came home from college to take guardianship of myself and my younger brother. And but the rule was when you turned 18, you're kind of on your own. So when I graduated from high school, I went to Texas Tech for a year and was working full time trying to go to school and it was tough. So yeah. I thought, okay, there's gotta be an easier way for me to get my education. And that's when I decided that I would join the military and serve my country, get educational benefits, learn a skill. And what I thought was gonna be a four year career turned out to be a 27 year career and which would have been longer had they not blown me up. So, um, you know, I would have stayed forever, but it was cut short by you know, my, my injuries. But um, I loved every minute of it. And I thrived in the environment of the military. It's very structured. It's very esprit de corps. The camaraderie is wonderful. I do like moving around, meeting new people, seeing new things, uh, living in different countries. So it was a, it was a match made in heaven. Well, first of all, that's wonderful to hear. That's really wonderful to hear. I think there, there's so much talk about women in leadership and we could, we could really do an entire hour or, or more just on that. But I'm just wondering, because you, you held so many different positions in the military as a woman, what do you think it was about you that allowed you to thrive and also to rise? So I think 
I, because of, you know, kind of what happened to us at a young age, we became very independent at a young age. And that certainly helped in the military because as much as you are as part of a team, what separates the people who may rise to uh, senior leadership positions is the fact to be able to problem solve and also not to get overly boarded by, you know, things like, you're thought, okay, this isn't good, but let me figure out how to do this. And I think that I kind of honed in on those skills. I probably had them all along because my parents kind of demanded that of us, like, you got to solve your own problems, we'll be there, but we're not going to step in until it's almost a catastrophe. And so, you know, the military is always looking for people who are like A-type personalities. How high can I jump? How far can I go? willing to push themselves a little bit harder than what's comfortable. And so when you are kind of have that DNA about you, then usually in the military, you have a pretty successful career. You as a, were you a good student in high school? I was an okay student in high school. I could have been better, but I was distracted. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had, a, you had a lot to deal with, right? You had a lot to deal with. As you mentioned, both of your parents passed away. And that period from when your parents passed away into college, where you're trying to make your way in college, where did you have to dig deep and what did you learn about yourself that allowed you to get through that? Because that's such a traumatic event for a young person. Yeah, so we became, you know, a household that was totally run by a 21-year-old, a 15-year-old, and a 13-year-old. Oh, my and goodness. Like, you know, we there wasn't anybody there to tell us to go grocery shopping or to clean the house or do our homework or any of that. We had to decide for ourselves what kind of life we were going to have. And, you know, there was always mm. this kind of looming fear in the back that, the Child Protective Services would step in at any moment if we didn't do our part and put myself and my younger brother into foster care. So there was a lot of pressure on my older brother. You know, I mean, he went to parent teacher conferences. He did all that stuff. OK. And so we became what we considered a pretty normal family, considering <laughs> all the things I mean, we we know we figured it out. I mean, to sit down and write mortgage payments at 21 and pay electricity bills and, you know, all those things that you take for granted at that age. And all of a sudden it was all on us, car insurance, wow. cars, and, you know, all that was really taken care of by our parents. And all of a sudden it was our responsibility, taxes, all those kinds of things. And then we all had a job because, you know, Kurt, my oldest brother was working in the oil fields and he made a good living, but it wasn't enough to sustain three people. So we all had jobs and we bought our own clothes and we budgeted our own money, our own lunch money, our own gas money. So I, you know, that's just the way that it was. And so that permeated into our, you know, way of life. Like I'm responsible for me. And I didn't feel like it was a burden. I felt like that this is reality. I just had a taste of reality a little bit earlier than the average person, perhaps. I feel like also you being the second born puts you in such a unique position because you're managing the expectations of your older brother, but you're also trying to protect your younger brother. And that's sort of it. You mentioned the word, the concept of esprit de corps, this idea of making sure everyone's okay. I think I, I see that with my second child, that that caring for really like a, a empathy and a compassion was really setting you up for success in the military, and you probably didn't even know it. No, I probably I didn't know it at the time, but you're absolutely right. So it's that nurturing 
Okay, I'm responsible for these people to make sure they get fed, to make sure they have the equipment they need to be successful, to set up an environment for them to be able to do the things that they needed to do. And so you're always, you know, always looking to make sure that everybody's okay. Mm-hmm. And that is all about leadership in the military. It's all about caring for those that are put in your charge to make sure that they have what they need to be safe and successful. Take me to your darkest day when you had the catastrophic injury. How did the day begin and what happened? So the day began with um, me deciding that I needed to go out and visit some of my most remote forward operating bases because we were getting towards the end of that particular combat tour. And the last like 60 days of a combat tour are the most dangerous because it's just natural to start thinking about going home. Sure. Okay. So they've been yep. there, you know, 18 months. It's a long time. Babies have been born. They've never seen the spouses are waiting on them, children, parents, you know, brothers and sisters. And so they experience had taught me, this was not my first combat tour. They had taught me that I needed to go out and visit these troops and remind them that we're still in a very dangerous place. And until we get on that freedom bird, I need their head on a swivel. Mm-hmm. I need them to continue to be very vigilant in what they're doing. So I hopped in the helicopter and went out to a forward operating base that was right on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I had just landed, hopped out of the helicopter. You know, the soldiers are all coming out. We're shaking hands and I'm starting my my spiel about, OK, guys and gals. OK, or yes, I know we're almost home, but we're not home yet. OK, and anything can happen. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know don't know we're in a dangerous place. And before I even probably got out the rest of those words, all of a sudden rockets started coming in and they were coming in like rain. I mean, just peppering us. So the protocol is you send out a quick reaction force up armored Humvees. They leave the back gate. They go and they find out whoever it is that's firing these rockets at us and stop that. But in the meantime, for those of us that are on this little tiny forward operating base, there's really nothing we can do. Okay except protect ourselves. So you get into these igloo-shaped bunkers made out of concrete and then reinforced with sandbags. And so I was yelling to the troops, get in the bunkers, get in the bunkers. And then a round landed to my right. Uh, And even though I don't hear sounds anymore, I'll never forget that sound because I knew when that thing hit, that big thud, that thing hit, and my brain could process that information in about three seconds that that thing landed really close to me and that I had about three seconds before it exploded and it was not going to be good because I knew it was extremely close to where I was standing. Hmm. So I had two of my personal security detachment guys standing next to me and they absorbed most of that blast and did not survive that blast. And then Hmm. The eyewitnesses said that that blast took me, you know, I'm, I'm petite in size and threw me horizontally until I hit head first into one of those concrete bunkers. And even though I had a Kevlar on, that impact was pretty powerful. And then I don't remember, really remember anything until I woke up in, in Lonstall and the doctor then informed me of the severity of my injuries. And that's when I knew that my career was over. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, thank you. I'm sure you're, t- you t- you're a speaker, so you tell that story quite a bit, but it's the emotional impact of it for someone who hasn't heard it is quite um, dramatic. I can't imagine what it's like to live it and to go through it. How did you begin to heal? 
And how are your injuries to this moment? Yeah, so the healing process in the beginning was, you know, was ugly. I'll, I'll be totally honest with you. I was, I didn't even care about my injuries. It was that my career had been taken from me. Yeah. And I didn't have a plan B. I never thought about retirement. So, you know, losing my career was devastating. And also, I didn't think I was really good at anything else. You know, I went into the military at 19. I was 46 when I was wounded. So my whole adult life almost was in the military. And so navigating that shift between military life and civilian life is hard no matter what. And then you add injuries on top of that. And it was pretty, it was pretty devastating to me. So two significant things helped me with my healing. I should say three. One was experiencing the expedition with no barriers. And it may sound really simple that a five-day hike could could change your life like it did, but it it did for me. The the life elements that Eric Weimeyer developed really resonated with me. And it was just like I did a 180 degree turn from, you know, really waking up every day, wanting, trying to convince myself that I had a reason to still be on this face of this earth to realizing that I still had something to give back to the world and not still had it, but I had an obligation to do so. Mm. So that was a good first turning point. The second was getting my service dog or was my first service dog. And all of a sudden I didn't feel like a deaf person anymore because she alerted me to sounds. And also she was my constant companion. And I didn't have to talk about my injuries when people approached me because they wanted to talk about the dog. Mm -hmm. And so whenever they walk up and say, oh, your dog is beautiful. She's a service dog. What does she do for you? It was a roundabout way for me to explain what happened to me. And I could say, you know what? She hears for me because I lost my hearing in combat. And it was just a little easier for me to approach that than sure. someone walking up to me and saying, you know, what happened to you? Yeah. <laughs> it was just a, an easier, gentler way for me to explain what happened to me. It didn't feel so intrusive. And then the third thing is, is in my rope team, people that, you know, supported me as I was going through this trying time. They were there in the lowest of the moments to as I started kind of getting my mojo back together and finding my new passion and purpose, you know, they were there and they held the line when I was on my knees and helped me get back up. And they were encouragers and they had faith in me and helped support my, my dreams and aspiration. And I couldn't have done it without them. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. 
There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Angostura. If you've ever made a cocktail at home, you've most likely shaken Angostura bitters into your cocktail at the very end of the cocktail making process. In addition to bitters, Angostura has been making world-class rum for more than 130 years. The next fall cocktail you make, try the beautiful, smooth flavor of Angostura rum. It will transport you to the Caribbean islands of Trinidad and Tobago. The House of Angostura will celebrate its 200-year anniversary of turning drinks into cocktails in 2024. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. You know, I really want to unpack this because this is so interesting to me. You did this five-day hike with Eric Weinmayer, who is the first blind man to ever hike Mount Everest. He's an incredible man. I've interviewed him. And he has a organization called No Barriers that helps people of all so many different areas, disabilities, challenges, see that whatever is in front of them can be overcome. And so, first of all, what brought you to Eric? How did you even get involved and how did you know to do that hike in the first place? So a battle buddy of mine had just gone on an expedition and he knew that I was struggling. And so he wrote me an email and he says, look, Sergeant Major, I know you're having a tough time. And I just came back from this expedition with an organization called No Barriers. And I really think that this could help you. You know, and I had, to be honest with you, I had, I was not convinced. I had tried everything to kind of regain, you know, my life. I had tried medication and meditation and all kinds of programs and all this. And not, all of them were helpful to a certain degree, but it wasn't the one that, you know, ignited the spark that I knew, but I gave you my word. And, you know, if nothing else, my word is good. So mm-hmm. I signed up and I sent in my form and surprisingly I was accepted. And then I, and then I went, and like I said, the curriculum, the life elements that Eric developed coming down Mount Everest really resonated with me, you know, find your rope team. You had the, the vision elevate alchemy, which was, you know, really resonated with me, the alchemy, but, you know, taking something that was bad and turning it into to good, certainly, you know, fit my profile at the time. And, and then later I, you know, I met Eric face to face and, you know, he's blind and I'm deaf. And I told him we could, we could be a Saturday night live skit. (laughs) (laughs) Together we make a whole person. And I don't know, we just kind of, we connected on a way that I hadn't connected with another person in a long time. And Eric says, you know, Gretchen, we can, we can do this. Okay. We can help each other. And we did. And I've done, I went, Eric and I took 14 mixed ability kids, teenagers to Nepal for two weeks. 
Wow. What parent signed that form to let <laughs> a deaf person, a person and a blind person take their teenagers? I don't know. Okay. Cause that was just crazy. But we watched these kids transform from being the blind kid or the deaf kid or the kid with cerebral palsy or the kid with a traumatic brain injury. And by the third day, they quit talking about their injuries or their illnesses and they became just kids. Mm-hmm. And Eric and I were able to witness that. And it was life-changing for me and for those kids. And those parents wrote us letters and says, we don't know what happened in Nepal, but we all we know is that our kids are not afraid to go to school anymore. And they're not ashamed of their illness or injury in that all of a sudden they're not talking about it anymore. Like what is life going to look like as a blind person? Because they got to see it in Eric Mm. and they got to see hopefully in me. And they said, wow, these two people who are just like us are doing amazing things. So I got to quit focusing on what I can't do and start focusing on what I can do. Yes. And that's really like a pivotal thing in your brain. Okay. It's like, okay, forget about the things you can't do. Let's figure out what you can do. Right. And isn't it something when we get out of our own way, I think when we're going through something really difficult, we are mired in our own story and we really can't see the forest for the trees. Like, for example, when you you were telling your story and you said, you know, you, you had never imagined a world where you weren't in the military and you didn't even think you had anything to offer. And I, I literally took a gasp because here you are as one of the most, you know, uh, most amazing women in the military, the amount of leadership skills you have, the training, even from before you even got in the military to what you had to go through with your family, the, what you have to bring to any organization is like stunning. But that's my perspective that I'm pushing onto you. At that yeah. moment, you did not see that. You did yeah. not know that. It probably has taken you a while to kind of, I, I want to say like like a helicopter above your own story looking down, right? Yes. Yeah, I think I didn't see it. I didn't feel it. What I felt was was like I was broken. Mm. And, you know, and initially people looked at me like I was broken. I mean, so most of my injuries are invisible. My head injury, my deafness, you can't see those. But, you know, I've been hit in the face with shrapnel. You can certainly see that. And I've got scars all over me. You can see those. It wasn't out of malice. It was like they look at you with compassion, but they also looked at you like, okay, something bad's happened to you and, you know, and that has set you back. And I didn't want to feel like that. You didn't want to be pitied. You did not want to be pitied. You're someone who has risen through so much and overcome so much that that was the last thing that you wanted. Yeah, that was the last thing. Exactly. I wanted them to look at me like just everybody else in spite of what happened to me and to see the potential Finally, I just had to see it for myself. That was the, 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 you know, the key that unlocked the box. I had to see it for myself. Mm. And then other people were, be, were able to see it. How much of your book, Leading from the Front, talks about what we just talked about? Or why did you write Leading from the Front? And what is that about? So it was never meant to be a book. So the book is vignettes, really, about the amazing men and women that I served with. And then at the end, it talks about my family. But that book was born out of two years of intensive therapy as I was dealing with survivor's guilt and leadership guilt and moral injury and all those things. I had a really great psychologist and he says, Gretchen, when you write things, you use a different part of your brain than when you tell things. And what I want Mm -hmm. you to do is write these things. And then he would ask these interrogative questions. 
about what did it smell like and what did you really feel when that happened and what else was going on was it happened and we were trying to peel back these layers to find out where this guilt was coming from and then you know finally it was like an illumination round and he says okay so you took route a and you got ambushed and you hold yourself responsible because you're the leader he says why did you take route a and i said Oh, I took Route A because the intel briefing told me that Route B was dangerous. And so he said, so Gretchen, you made the best decision you could make with the information that you had. And unfortunately, in war, it doesn't always work out the way that you think it's going to do. But he says, but that's not your fault. Hmm. You can't hold yourself responsible, okay, for things that are out of your control. You know, and, and yet I was. I was thinking, God, if I'd just taken Route B, then those guys wouldn't have gotten killed. You know, I had to reconcile with those things that happened to me as a leader in the military and forgive myself, or not even that, but just recognize that I was the best sergeant major that I could be, but I couldn't always control all the circumstances. And I just couldn't own every bad thing that happened that sometimes that's just what happens in life. You do all the right things and yet something bad happens, but I couldn't get past that. So that's where that book was born out of. Mm -hmm. And then my husband was reading it to help me with my PTSD and my moral injury. And he was the one that said to me, Gretchen, if you could ever be bold enough to put this out there, you could probably help a lot of people because mm -hmm. of something somebody with your rank and stature says to can write openly and say, this is what happened and this is how I felt about it. And this is what broke my heart. Then they're going to feel like they're not the only ones feeling that way. Absolutely. I mean, that story is your story, but how many other, just let's stay in the, the lane of military, how many military members of, of, of so many different wars feel that way? If only I'd done this, if only I'd gone this way, it can literally haunt you your entire life yeah. if you could but if you could make a decision that sometimes bad things happen even when you make the absolute best decision yeah. you can when you say it like that and and a life was lost it sounds so trite and so that's it's hard for us to say sometimes bad things happen in the military you're like that's your job is to prevent bad things from happening and so you hold yourself accountable you know yeah. and it, but the reality is when you when you really dig down in there and find out life's like, man, I, you know, I I made the best decisions I could make with the best information that I had in order to bring all my soldiers home safely. And but sometimes I couldn't control everything that happened. You have to forgive yourself. Yeah. Of all of the speeches you give now, um, your work with no barriers, I imagine that working with young people like you did really has to be very special. Yeah. What is it like working with a young person who is going through such a hard time? Well, start with the military. So the average age in the military is like 24 years old. You know, that people enlist right out of high school. And then um, the average service member, I think only 1% actually retire from the military. Because, you know, it's, really? yeah. Yeah, it's wow. a very low percentage. So they usually get out either after the first four years when it's time to reenlist, they figure out it's not for them, you know, which is great. And they go on to do other wonderful things. And then some will last another 
you know, four years and then they get out. So it's a revolving door of young people. Mm-hmm. And you have to think like they think. You have to remember how it was. So I came in at 19, a slick sleeve private. I had no rank. And uh, when I started really being in a leadership position with these young men and women, I had to remember this is the way they think. Okay. This is the way they feel. And this may be the first time they've been away from home and they're looking to you to help them navigate, which can be sometimes a harsh life. Okay. In the sense that, you know, the military puts lots of demands on you and you have to be able to mentor them in a way where they get confidence in themselves and they understand what's required of them and instill discipline in them without being an asshole. <laughs> the quote I mean, of the day. Else, yeah, I don't know what else to say, but you know, really, because yeah. especially for me being a petite woman, you know, I couldn't adopt the leadership style of intimidation. Okay. Right. That's going to work for me. Right. Okay. I mean, I'm 105 pounds on a good day. <laughs> and so I had to develop leadership skills to gain their trust and their loyalty and their confidence in a different way than just saying that I'm this brute force and you're going to do what I tell you to do because I'm the sergeant major. Okay, that wasn't going to work for me. And so it was out of just making sure that my skills were good and that I was good at making decisions and that I had some empathy and some sympathy for the situation that we were in, even though all of us were there, were volunteers. Still, it doesn't take the sting out of putting your life on the line every day while you're in combat. And it doesn't take the sting away from being away from your family. So I had to compensate for their what they're all feeling and give them what they needed to understand that we're here to help people. Okay, so that's what that term in service means. Back in the day, you asked someone, what do you do? And they said, well, I'm in the service. Well, you're in the, the reason that term came is that you're in the service of somebody other than yourself. Yes. You're in the service of your country. You're in the service of the men and women that you're leading. And you're in the service of maybe even another country you're, that needs your help. Think about all the peacekeeping missions that we go on where we're feeding people or we're saving, you know, some kind of national disaster has happened and then they call in the military. So it's always about who you're serving. Yeah. Why am I here? Okay. And identifying their why for them. Why are you here? You're here to do this service. And that's why you're here. And and the deep empathy that you're talking about, you said that, you know, you had to play a different card than the intimidation because yeah. that was a, that card was not going to be in your in your hand. It, tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm, what I'm hearing from you is that the card that you played was caring for the person, especially knowing that they're just coming into this new environment. How can I best equip them to be successful in this environment that can be very, very difficult and very harsh? I also think there is something to be said for, and this can translate to to leadership, just big L in general, apart from the military. When you can, when you know somebody cares about you and cares about your well-being and your success, to me, that is the heart of leadership. More, more so than someone who's gonna, you know, wag their finger and um, scream at me, right? Well, there's something about human nature. When we feel like someone is fair and cares for us, we'll follow them anywhere. Exactly. And so I always say that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. 
Mm, that's so great. It didn't matter how smart I was or how proficient I was in my skills or that kind of stuff. It didn't matter later, but what mattered first was that they needed to know that I had their best interest at heart. Every decision that I made, that I wasn't making it based on politics, based on what would look good for me as a sergeant major, what even sometimes what was pushed down to you know our level, that I always had the soldier themselves, their best interest at heart. And so I was trying to make decisions that would most benefit them under the circumstances we found ourselves in. Mm-hmm. One of the things you said was, you know, you try to tried to lead and, and not be an asshole, which I think is just fantastic. <laughs> but I, 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 a bit. <laughs> and I don't I don't even know how I'm going to this question's going to come out of my mouth, but just bear with me here. How did you deal with that brute force kind of style of leadership and what I'm assuming is many difficult people along the way in your leadership career? What was yeah. your MO when it came to dealing with assholes? Yeah. So my theory about that is that if you are so focused on being awful to other people, that's coming from within. Mm -hmm. It's not my problem. So Mm -hmm. always I tell people this all the time. What you think and say about me is not my business. My business is to be the best person I can be every day in every circumstances. And so I can't let your negativity or your judgment or your whatever interfere with what I'm doing. Mm. Because if you're just a person who's a naysayer or just a person who likes to belittle people, I don't have time for that. Really, Mm. I don't. And so it's not like it didn't hurt or it didn't bother me, but I just had to like, it's like you take that comment captive and you ask yourself, is this true? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's creative criticism and maybe I need to listen. But if I knew it was just petty and mean because I was a female and or pit mean because it was jealousy or petty and mean because whatever, then I, you know what? I just didn't let it like permeate my brain. Wow. I literally just said, it's not my business what you think about me. I could care less. I can't control it anyway. So why should I even give you a breath of my time? How did you get there, Gretchen? How did, was there something that happened along the way that got you sort of, in, when, I, when you're describing a sort of impermeable to, to, to negativity, meaning you're, you are who you are, here I am, I'm here to do good. And if you're not going to be, if you're going to criticize me, you are not going to get into my orbit here. How, how did you get there? I think I just watched other leaders do it. I didn't have a lot of peers or not a lot of women. I went in 1979. So this is like not long after the Vietnam War had ended. And there certainly was not a lot of females. But even the men that I served with, most of them were Vietnam veterans. And they showed me that, you know, as unpopular as that war was, and people were saying ugly and nasty things about them, they still did what they had to do. And I watched them navigate this whole world that kind of held them accountable for the war that all they did was go and do what they were told to do, okay, that they didn't, you know, so I watched them navigate that and still serve with honor and dignity, even though the world was against them. And I thought, that's the way to deal with negativity right there. Mm-hmm. And they showed up every day and they taught us how to be soldiers and how to serve with honor and not to let that interfere with what we're doing. It was kind of like, we've got a mission to do. And we can't be letting that negativity stuff interfere with it. 
because we're, we're what stands between bad, evil things and good. Mm. So we can't be like that stuff, like mess with our day. Okay. Just let it go. You know, let it, let it be. You dealt with a lot of young people coming up the ranks. Could you spot immediately who was going to be successful in the military or who wasn't? And what characteristic could you be like, okay, they've got this and that's a really good sign that they have it for the long haul here? Oh, yeah. You can usually discern pretty quickly who good leaders and bad leaders are. And I think it's the same way in the civilian world. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just by the way they carry themselves. And really, and it sounds cliche, but it, I think it, it's the absolute truth is that how you treat people is a indicator of what kind of leader you will be. Mm. Because it's the most precious thing that we have are, are the people. You know, I can replace equipment and I can, re, you know, order food and bullets and weapons and all this kind of stuff but it's that we call it precious cargo in the military. Mm -hmm. So if I'm in an airplane and I've got supplies and, and I'm calling in and I'm making a hot landing and I'll say, okay, I'm coming in with ammunition or whatever. But if you're coming in and I'm playing and it's full of soldiers, you say, I'm, I'm coming in with precious cargo. Mm -hmm. And so that's the way I viewed my soldiers. They were precious. And so I needed to treat them that way. And I think that you just can't hardly help but be a good leader if you love people that like that. Mm. Yeah, you you don't think of like radical, abundant love when you think of the military leadership. But when you hear what you just said, that really makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, to lead with love. I am really excited to meet you in a few weeks. We are going to uh, be in Golden, Colorado at an event for Eric and the No Barriers. Tell me a little bit about what are you doing now? How are you spending your time? And what are you looking forward to as you, uh, you strike me as someone who will never retire, right? That you're someone who enjoys what they do. What, what's at the heart of what you're doing and what are you most excited about? So what's at the heart of, you know, really what makes my heart sing. Okay. But I don't know, empowers me just to, to live what I consider the best life in the world is that I've come to the place where I can tell my story about what happened in such a way that um, even though it comes at a cost to me to tell this story, because still, it's still very painful, mm -hmm. but I'm not telling the story for the sake of just telling the story. I'm telling the story to give other people who have endured life-altering injuries or illnesses or traumas an example or a way to move forward, okay? And hopefully that they can glean something that I've said about how I navigated being at the top of my career. You know, I mean, it was unlimited to being like in a millisecond, it was all gone and, and not be bitter about that and not be not succumbing to, you know, all the things that you can do and you can be kicked to the curb. Okay. Cause I think everybody gets kicked to the curb at least once in life. So that's my number one thing is to encourage and empower people to live their best life in spite of things that have happened to them. And I think that you can't just tell that story. I think you have to live that story. Mm. And so hopefully I'm doing that. And then I have team I'm broken, which is my adaptive athletic team. 
And we were kind of, we're kind of like the walking, hopefully, example of because everybody on my team has a life altering injury or illness. And we go out and we do these challenging athletic events. And it's not so much about the athletic event. It's showing people that, yeah, okay, we're not all, you know, I got people who are missing limbs, okay, and, you know, have injuries and whatever. And we're still out there doing things that we love. So, you know, like I said, our mantra is this, is that our mixed abilities do not define who we are, what we can accomplish. We don't give that privilege to something that's happened to us. We mm-hmm. find a way to still live our best life in spite of the fact that I'm deaf, in spite of the fact that I have a brain injury, in spite of the fact that all these things have happened, I'm living my best life and that everybody else can do that too. Oh, that's wonderful. I talk to companies all the time and sometimes it's about my story and sometimes it's about leadership mm-hmm. and sometimes it's about teamwork and sometimes it's just about getting through the getting through. Okay. And, you know, how do you do that without losing hope? And I think that's what happens to people is when something really traumatic happens to them, they lose hope. And when you lose hope, it's hard to, it's hard to regain any traction. Okay. Because you got to hope for something. You got to hope for a better day. You got to hope for something. And so that's what I'm doing. Um, let's see. Love and life in Texas, right? You got to put that up there, enjoying your time and in, in your uh, home, t- basically go, you come home again, right? You yeah. come home. Yeah. I enjoy being back in Texas. There's a second book that's kind of servicing. Okay. Because when I wrote my first book, I didn't even talk about my injuries. I was not in the place to talk about my injuries. I didn't even dress the injuries. And so there's there's a second book in there in somewhere, but when I have time, I'll get to that. This is, conversation's been wonderful. Thank you, Gretchen. Thank you. Thank you for your service and thank you for sharing your truth. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at todinefor with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, Lavazza, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.